0: You may recognize a disease called ALS, or Lou Gehrig's, or even participated in the Ice Bucket Challenge, but really don't know the depths of what causes this disease. Statistics from Johns Hopkins School of Medicine reveal that most people who develop ALS are between the ages of 40 and 70, although the disease can occur at a younger age. It occurs throughout the world with no racial, ethnic, or social economic boundaries. What's crazy is that it affects as many as 30,000 in the United States, with 5,000 new cases each year. But what causes this disease? Can we study it without using affected patients as test subjects? The answer is yes. Believe it or not, we are able to understand some of the mechanisms that govern the underlying issues with an organism that you probably interact with on a daily basis. Baker's yeast. With the use of Baker's yeast as a model organism, the Gettler lab studies the cell biology underpinning protein misfolding disease like Parkinson's disease and ALS. Their long-term goal is to identify the critical genes and cellular pathways affected by misfolded human disease proteins. Don't know much
1: Hello, and welcome to Radio Bio. This is your host, Genevieve Mullins.
0: And I'm Morgan Quayle. Here today, we are joined by Dr. Aaron Gittler from Stanford University. Thank you for joining us today.
2: Thanks, Morgan. Thanks, Genevieve. It's great to be here.
1: Broadly speaking, what's your research topic?
2: My laboratory is interested in the mechanisms of human neurodegenerative diseases. So these diseases include Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, ALS. They're very different types of diseases. But they all share this feature called protein aggregation. So what that means is in the brains of patients with these diseases, proteins misfold and aggregate or form clumps in the brain. So So all cells from yeast cells to neurons have this ridiculous challenge to keep proteins folded properly. Um, the concentration of proteins in cells is insane. It's like 300 megs per mil. So they're really packed in there. They're bumping into each other. So it's a huge challenge to keep them folded properly. Once they misfold, the cell has to sense that, um, send chaper- activate chaperones, pr- sort of molecular machines that find out, find those proteins and then try to get them back in the right shape. And if that doesn't work, send them to be degraded. So there's this huge uh, amount of effort put in by the cell to make sure the proteins are folded properly and the ones that aren't folded properly are are tagged and sent for destruction. So there are a lot of places where that can go wrong. And I'm very interested in trying to figure out what causes these proteins to form clumps and then once they do, why does this damage neurons? And we want to learn this because then we can try and come up with ways to prevent the proteins from aggregating and then once they aggregate to try to protect neurons from their uh, deleterious effects.
0: So I'd like to clarify a little bit of your research. Um, How do you do this? So I know later we use, you use, uh, you know, postmodern samples, but do you use a model organism or how do you do these studies to start?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And our approach is a little bit unusual in that we're using a very simple model system to study these complicated diseases. The model system that we're using is the baker's yeast. It's the same yeast that you know of that makes bread and beer and wine. It's just a single cell that divides by budding. There's no brain. They don't have a spinal cord, no nervous system. It's just literally a single cell. But we think even though it's really simple, we can learn powerful things from it, even about complicated diseases like Alzheimer's disease or ALS, because proteins have to fold properly in simple yeast cells, just like they do in the complicated neurons in our brain. So we just use it as a way, kind of like a living test tube. Like we can put these proteins that form clumps in the brain of patients and they'll form clumps in these yeast cells. And then once they do that, we can start to try to figure out what causes them to form clumps in yeast and what we can do about it.
1: So you kind of got into this a little bit, but what does using um, these model organisms provide to your research? Like how do they help with understanding these concepts?
0: So I th- I think I also am cu- I'm curious because like is there is there a, a, the same protein that occurs in yeast or is it a different protein or how do we know that it actually even though it's the same aggregate that it relates to humans?
2: Yeah, th- those are great points because um, with any model you want to really make sure that it's relevant to what you're studying. So a reason you would study use a model organism is that these diseases take a really long time in humans, right? They take decades. And we don't have decades to, to wait to study them. So we want to study this process in something that's very rapid. And the yeast cells divide very rapidly, and we can see effects just in a matter of hours. So it's we call it a model system because we're using it to model what we think goes on, goes on in human. Um, but your point is good because anything we learn in the simple yeast system, we want to make sure that we validate it in other systems to keep sort of making sure that what we've learned is relevant.
0: I know the common fruit fly has been used in a model organism for disease before, and even addiction at times. Have you tested this mechanism or your mechanism that you're studying um, in other model organisms?
2: We've also used the fruit fly. So in uh, one part of my lab's research, we discovered a mechanism to explain how yeast cells can be protected from the aggregation of an ALS protein. And we wanted to test whether what we were learning was relevant to the nervous system. But before we can go to to something like mouse or human, we started with the fruit fly, like you just mentioned. And we introduced the same proteins that aggregate in human ALS patients to the fruit fly. And these caused uh, defects in the fruit fly. It affected their Uh, ability to climb, and it shortened their lifespan. And what was really neat was that we found the same intervention that we did in yeast to protect the yeast cells also worked in the fruit fly nervous system. So this gave us confidence that what we were learning in yeast could be relevant to the nervous system.
1: So what does it take to work with your model organisms? You know, what is it like just like a day in your lab working with these organisms?
2: So yeast cells are really great to work with. You can grow them up in a in a test tube or a culture flask, and you have uh, and it smell. Actually, it smells really nice. It smells like bread, <laughs> really. Um, so it, it smells really nice, and you um, or you put the yeast cells in some liquid, and you shake them, and they divide. About every ninety minutes, one yeast cell will divide into two, and you can grow up a lot of them this way. And um, Or you can allow them to grow on these uh, plates of agar. It's like a, like a semi-solid material where the yeast cells will divide and form colonies. And um, what's great about yeast is that they're uh, very amenable to genetic manipulation. So yeast cells have about 6,000 genes in their genome. Just as a comparison, humans have about 20,000 genes.
0: That's a huge difference.
2: And almost... All of the genes are known in in the yeast genome, so it's very well characterized, and we can delete every yeast gene one at a time and ask, what does that gene do when we take it away? Uh, So that makes it really powerful. We can add genes, we can take them away, we can look at them under the microscope, see where the proteins those genes encode are localized, and uh, we can make combinations of knockouts. So uh, it's a very powerful genetic model organism. And... Almost everything we know today about cancer actually started by studying how yeast cell divides and what c- regulates the cell cycle, and cancer is really dysregulated cell division. So yeast has really played a powerful role in understanding human cell biology with direct relevance to human disease.
1: Now that we have a pretty good handle on what your model organism is and how does it work what protein specifically do you investigate in your lab? Since you were talking about protein misfolding kind of being at the base of what you look at.
2: So there's a human disease called ALS or amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. It's also known as Lou Gehrig's disease in the United States. It's named after the New York Yankees first baseman who had the disease. And this is a really devastating disease and it's caused by a... Progressive loss of a type of nerve in the brain and spinal cord called motor neurons, and these nerves are what innervate muscle and control movement. And as these nerves die, it causes muscle weakness, and then it, that leads to paralysis. And uh, usually, um, this eventually results in respiratory failure. And it's a universally fatal disease um, with. Uh, a, with a life expectancy of about two to five years. Um, and there's no treatments that are, that are very effective, and we really don't know much about the causes of ALS. So I'm trying to study what causes ALS, and I'm interested in it because it's associated with a protein that misfolds and forms those clumps. And the protein that forms clumps in the motor neurons of ALS patients is called TDP43. And this is a protein that can bind to RNA, a type of nucleic acid that all of our cells have. And normally, this protein binds to RNA, and it helps regulate its proper function and localization. Somehow, you can imagine when this protein gets clumping and aggregated, it's not able to do that function well. And this causes problems for motor neurons. So I'm trying to figure out how to protect neurons once this RNA binding protein, TDP43, starts forming clumps.
0: How do you actually look at these human proteins in yeast? Because I remember you you just mentioned that you look at this human protein, but you use yeast. Does it actually occur in yeast naturally? Or is there something else that we do to study it?
2: So Morgan, what I do is I take the human protein that normally aggregates in the spinal cord of, uh, of humans with ALS, and I introduce it into yeast. I take the gene that encodes that protein, and I put the human gene into yeast cells. This is an experiment that just takes one day. It's very easy to introduce foreign genes into yeast. And then, because I wanna see where that protein will go, I can use a genetic trick where I can hook up to that protein another protein from a jellyfish called the green fluorescent protein. And this will allow the ALS protein to glow green, and I could see where it goes. And this was really cool because this allowed me to see this human ALS protein starting to form clumps in the yeast cell in just a few hours. So I have, now I have in my lab yeast cells that have gr- glowing green clumps of this ALS protein.
0: Wow, that's actually quite amazing. So now that you have these yeasts, and you see these aggregates that you would normally see in um, human motor neurons. Uh, then, what do you do? Do you look for an antagonist or a protagonist? Like, is are we are we looking for something that's going to make it uh, more like happen more in the cell, or is it looking for something that's going to like suppress its actual activation?
2: Right. So, what we noticed once this protein, this glowing green ALS protein, started aggregating in in the yeast cells. We noticed that the yeast cells were not happy about it. So normally, like I was telling you earlier, yeast cells divide every 90 minutes. And if you let that keep going, they'll um, expand and there'll be a lot of them in your culture. What we noticed was that when we were producing this ALS protein that was forming clumps, the yeast cells would stop dividing and eventually they would die. So this, we thought, could be a model for what was going on in motor neurons that had the clumping protein. But we had an idea that if we could figure out ways of stopping the yeast cells from dying from this clumping protein, it might give us some clues about what was wrong in the first place. This is actually why you want to use a model system, because we can very easily test every gene, all 6,000 genes, and ask if we could find genes that could rescue the toxicity, allow the cells to grow even in the presence of this gene that would normally be this toxic protein. So that's what we did. We tested all 6,000 yeast genes one at a time. And we found about 40 of them that could allow the cells to grow better even in the presence of that toxic ALS protein. And I've, my lab has been working on those genes for the last 10 years to try to figure out what that's telling us about human ALS. And importantly, if we could take some of those genes and see if it, that could actually help humans that have ALS, because uh, many of those genes have relatives in a human that do similar functions.
0: Out of those 40, did you actually find a candidate that is biologically relevant in, in humans that we can actually work on?
2: Yeah, so let me tell you a really uh, cool story about one of the genes that we found. So we have our yeast cells, we're about to accumulate this toxic ALS protein, and the yeast cells are not gonna like it, they're gonna die. We found this one gene that we could knock it out of the yeast cells.
1: A knockout refers to an organism that has been modified such that it completely lacks a certain gene. So now that gene or protein can no longer do its normal function.
2: And now the yeast cells are able to divide and grow and be completely healthy even in the presence of this ALS protein. And we got very excited about that yeast gene. And we then said, can we test this in the nervous system? So remember, I was mentioning that we did some experiments in the fruit fly. So that was the first gene we worked on. This is a gene called Ataxin2. And we said, okay, this Ataxin2 gene can protect yeast cells from this ALS protein when we removed it. What if we removed it from the fruit fly? So sure enough, when we removed the gene from the fruit fly, it protected the fruit fly from the toxic effects of this ALS protein. And then we were really interested in Ataxin 2 and we were wondering, could Ataxin 2 be important in humans for ALS? So we thought about the gene itself, the gene that encodes the Ataxin 2 protein. And we started sequencing the gene in a large number of ALS patients and a large number of healthy controls. And we found mutations in some of the ALS patients in the Ataxin 2 gene that we did not see in human in healthy humans. So this was really exciting because this proved that mutations in a gene that we originally discovered in a yeast like a yeast screen could tell us something direct directly about the human disease. Then then we wanted to go the next step further. And remember I said if we knocked this gene out of yeast cells or knocked it out of fruit flies it protected them from the ALS protein. So then we wondered could we take this one step further and see if we can target this as a therapy for ALS. And usually we have to test these uh, candidate therapies in a mammalian model, and we chose a mouse model. So there's very good mouse models of ALS, and these, uh, these models have neuron loss and paralysis, just like in the human situation. And we took one of those, and we knocked out the Ataxin2 gene in that mouse, and whereas the mice that had this als protein all died by 30 days the mice in the, the same mice in the cage in which we knocked out ataxin 2 lived for over 300 days so it had a really dramatic extension in survival when we knocked the gene out and then we took it one step further where we designed a dna like drug that would go into the cells find the ataxin 2 gene and silence it, prevent it from making a protein. And we injected this into the nervous system of those ALS mice that were about to get sick, and that prevented them from getting sick. And some of those mice lived much longer. So we're really excited about the idea that we can target a taxon to protect the nervous system from this ALS protein. And we're hopeful that this will now be picked up and developed into and tested as a potential therapy for human ALS. I I wanna also say that I think that um, these studies really um, underscore the power of simple model systems. We never would have guessed to study a Ataxin-2 if it hadn't been from a yeast screen. So really fundamental biology is learned by studying these very simple model systems. So whereas at first it might seem silly to study a fruit fly or baker's yeast or a zebrafish, there have been many breakthroughs that have direct relevance to human disease by just studying something that seems interesting in the lab.
0: You know, actually, I, I want <clears throat> to piggyback on that a little, because I'm actually looking into deletion mutants um, and overexpression mutants in my research, and I've actually noticed a large variation between these di- uh, different mutants, from both a cellular level to a colony level. Um, do you ever notice that these protein misfolding events... Uh, might change the morphology of either the cell or the colony? Or is is there something else that you're doing that might change this that might lead you into noticing, hey, this might have something to do with um, the, the viability of the cells? Or is it just that you noticed the length of time that these cells were dividing?
2: That's a great question. So our initial analysis was very crude. We would just look to see if the cells would grow or not grow. But recently, we've been looking more carefully at the yeast cells under the microscope. And just like you're pointing out, we we noticed that the cells form weird shapes and they're elongated. And so there are a lot of different things going on in these yeast cells that we hadn't noticed before that we think could be relevant to um, potentially the shape or the function of, of neurons that we might be learning from studying how these proteins affect the shape of yeast cells. Do you
1: inject it? The um, therapy just straight into like neuronal cells, or do you administer it like orally to the mice?
2: So for the mouse experiments, we injected it directly into the nervous system. And just thinking ahead, if this will if this will be used in human, it'll be an intrathecal injection, which means like a reverse spinal tap. It'll be directly injected into the fluid that's surrounding this the spinal cord. And this is actually um, just approved for a different disease um, last Christmas by the FDA for the treatment of spinal muscular atrophy. This is a motor neuron disease of infants. Um, it's completely fatal, and it's caused by mutations in the SMN1 gene. And using an antisense oligo to correct a genetic defect, this um, these infants were injected um, with this therapy, and this showed uh, remarkable efficacy, and the FDA uh, approved this as a treatment. So we're very hopeful that the same type of therapy that we're proposing for ALS um, might work in a similar way.
1: Okay, that, that's good. Um, mostly I was just wondering because if it were administered in a way that might be more um, like widespread, that it could have – effects on other cells that you like wouldn't aren't looking at like not neuronal cells but if it's not in the bloodstream then it probably isn't affecting non-neuronal cells
0: yeah it's kind of cool that it's a localized effect and not as much of a broad spectrum you know like an antibiotic where it can actually affect your affect your gut microbes you know you take something you're like oh i'm gonna get rid of this ailment and then you're actually affecting your digestive system but this is actually just affecting your nervous system so it's actually really cool really cool administration
2: Right. Um, On the other hand, it's it's more challenging, right, to deliver a therapy directly to the nervous system. There are advantages to delivering um, therapies directly to the nervous system, but um, there's also emerging evidence that neurodegenerative diseases are caused not only by defects in neurons, but non-neuronal cells like glial cells are also playing important roles. So, next generation therapies will may also involve delivery of therapeutics to the periphery or targeting non-neuronal cells as well.
1: Dr. Gittler was just talking about some other neuronal cells. So I'm going to kind of clarify one of the cells that he mentioned. So glial cells are cells in the nervous system, so the brain and the spinal cord, that assist neurons in their function. So this includes getting rid of uh, the neurons' waste products, and protecting the axon of the neuron itself. Um, In your opinion, how can um, really basic research, like the stuff that you do on like protein misfolding, these things that are really common to all cells, like all cells have proteins and all proteins need to be folded in a proper way. um, And how does understanding how these like fold or misfold and what kinds of pathways might dictate how these happen Um, how can this work eventually lead to these kinds of therapeutic approaches and applications that you've started to try to like implement and figure out?
2: That's a great question, Genevieve. Many of these diseases that we're talking about today are associated with aging. Perhaps after decades of struggling to keep proteins folded, these quality control machinery just wears out, right? And some proteins start slipping by the quality control and start misfolding and accumulating. But if we could find ways of boosting that quality control, making them a little bit better, right, so they don't breach those quality control checkpoints, then maybe we can stave off those diseases and delay them if we let the cells have better, better attention to making sure proteins fold properly. Or once they misfold, getting rid of them as quickly as possible.
1: Especially once they're already folded, right? Because I mean, most of the time, people aren't going to realize that there's having this problem until they start seeing effects related to the cells actually starting to die off. And by that point, you know, the proteins have already misfolded. They're already forming aggregates. And then the challenge is how do you get the cells to get rid of them like right. they're supposed to?
2: Right. And another really interesting area of research is on – develop. this is more on the engineering side, on developing dyes and um, pet ligands – where you can inject this into humans, and it can light up the brain, where in the brain these proteins are aggregating. So you can then actually scan, put someone in a PET scanner, and scan them in their brains, and you could see, what, you could see as soon as these proteins start clumping, and you could look if someone who has Alzheimer's disease may have a lot of these clumping in the brain, but you can go earlier and start to see once these are starting to form, and then you might want to have an earlier intervention. Imagine in the future, in your annual checkup at the doctor, they'll scan you for protein aggregation, and they'll say, all's clear. Next year, they'll take a look. They might see a little spot of aggregation. They keep keep an eye on it. We'll have all of these therapies that we could start start on to, to keep the proteins folded properly, and then we'll monitor the the efficacy of those therapies by looking at the scan and seeing if the proteins are cleared or stopping them from aggregating.
1: So these human neurodegenerative disorders are pretty much just driven by this protein misfolding that causes these aggregates. Um, Are there cells other than neurons that can be affected negatively um, from protein misfolding events in those cell types?
2: Right. So protein misfolding and aggregation is not just a problem for neurons. There are proteins that can misfold in astrocytes. There are uh, proteins that can aggregate in our liver or pancreas. There's a protein called islet amyloid polypeptide, which aggregates in pancreatic beta cells and that could contribute to diabetes. So I think it's a really, it's a common theme. All cells really struggle with maintaining proteins in the proper uh, three-dimensional structure. It might be that neurons are particularly sensitive because these are, neuro- these are cells that, we, that don't divide for the most part, and we have them from the time we're born till the time we're, we die, and they have to get rid of the proteins that are damaged, and they may have a harder time of doing this than cells that are, say, rapidly dividing.
0: I know we've talked a lot about what you're researching in your field, um, are there ever actually misconceptions about your research? Do people think you're gonna come up with some miracle food or miracle drug, or is there something that people just can't really wrap their head around?
2: Yeah, so this um, is probably the hardest part of our work. So I'm so excited about what we're doing in the lab, but then um, but there are real uh, people struggling with these really devastating diseases, and uh, we have great results in the lab, but we know it's still gonna be a long way before what we find will actually be translated into a therapy. Um, so when we publish our papers, um, the, we always receive uh, desperate emails from people with these diseases and their family members who really want to try anything to uh, to try to help their loved ones. Um, so we're I mean, that really motivates us to work harder and uh, to advance the research, but um, it is hard that we can't have something that's ready to go now, but, that, but we, we are laying the groundwork to, for hopefully some of our findings being translated uh, to eventually to help, to help people with these diseases.
0: So one more question um, I'm always curious to ask is, what made you want to study neurodegenerative diseases and protein misfolding?
2: So I feel very fortunate that I get to work in a laboratory with really smart students every day. And um, I think it's the best job in the world. When I was a graduate student, I started studying how the heart and blood vessels form and um, how some of these defects can lead to congenital heart disease in kids. And I was about to go on to do a postdoctoral fellowship to study some other aspect of developmental biology. But then I started reading some papers about a researcher at MIT studying how proteins fold in yeast cells. And I just thought those papers were so cool. I knew nothing about it, but they were just so cool. I just wanted to try it. So I just took a risk and just tried this completely new topic. And then this led to me starting to study how a protein that would misfolded yeast cells could teach us about um, human neurodegenerative disease. So it's really, um, I didn't plan to do it. It just seemed cool, seemed interesting. And I've, I've been working on it ever since. So I guess what I'm trying to say is uh, keep an open mind. Um, always pursue something that you think is interesting and um, keep looking for the big picture, right? And be open to, to trying new things, for me, the, the best discoveries have come when we synthesize things from different fields. Uh, so be, go listen to talks from scientists you might not normally listen to, read papers and journals that you might not normally listen to, because it'll always be something that you can pull into your, your own research.
1: This is Radio Bio, and thank you for joining us.
0: Radio Bio is supported by the Quantitative and Systems Biology Graduate Group, and the Graduate Division at the University of California, Merced. For more information, you can visit our website at radiobio.net or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram.